The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In addition to food security, he talked about what the U.S. is trying to do to fight climate change. He was able to reference his domestic success in getting climate change-related legislation through Congress. And, you know, he really tried to frame Washington as the power that is working to uphold the multilateral system across a whole range of issues in addition to Ukraine. And as I say, that that did mean that it felt like a very bulky speech. I mean, there were references to the U.S. funding a, a small modular nuclear plant in Romania that, that just felt a bit random. But nonetheless, I, I think the overall message came across, which is, you know, the U.S. isn't in retreat in the international system, the U.S. is actually propping up large parts of the, the U.N. machinery. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for September 29th, 2022. This week marked the end of the 77th session of the U.N. General Assembly, an annual event that brings world leaders together in New York and often serves as both a forum for and a barometer of international politics. This year's session was particularly notable both because it was the first in-person session since the onset of the global coronavirus pandemic, and because it was the first session since what many see as the greatest crisis in the United Nations history, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. To learn more about what went down at the UNGA, or UNGA, I sat down with Richard Gowan, the UN Director for the International Crisis Group. We discussed how the Ukraine conflict shaped events at the session, how major powers like China and the United States responded, and what it might all mean for the future of both the conflict in Ukraine and the United Nations itself. It's the Lawfare Podcast for September 29th. What happened at the UN General Assembly session with Richard Gowan? So Richard, we saw on Monday the end of what I think is indisputably a pretty historical UN General Assembly session for at least two reasons. One, this is the first in-person session we've seen since the onset of the global pandemic. Real effort was made to make this a face-to-face meeting again. And of course, that means that not just the actual General Assembly events can happen, but that it is, in fact, as most people who've ever engaged with it know, a big forum for sidelines diplomacy, where you have so many high-level diplomats coming to the United States 
and engaging in this. And so lots of people have lots of parallel meetings, which were able to take place again uh, after several years off. But then this is also the first UN General Assembly session since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which is a kind of earth shattering event, certainly for the UN system and the system of international norms that it has helped preserved and that is based around since, since the end of World War II. Tell us a little bit about how those two pivot points really shaped the session going into it. What were people expecting going into the assembly session, given those historic dynamics? I think everyone assumed that Ukraine would dominate the agenda. And of course, they were right. No one had foreseen that President Putin would raise the stakes during the high-level week by tabling the annexation of parts of Ukraine under Russian control. But even without that, it was obvious that the war was going to be the central topic for diplomatic discussions. It's worth saying that this, I think, created a lot of nervousness, especially for non-Western leaders coming to New York. And breaking down their speeches, it's fascinating to note that quite a few presidents and prime ministers managed to talk about Ukraine and managed to talk about the need for peace in Ukraine without actually mentioning that Russia was involved in the war or even using the word Russia. We saw a lot of people hedging their bets. We saw a lot of people weaving around the subject. And we can talk more about that. But the war was there as a constant point of reference. What was not there as a constant point of reference was COVID. And this was fascinating because inevitably in 2020 and 2021, when the General Assembly met virtually or largely virtually, the pandemic was the overwhelming topic of conversation. This year, it was reduced to an afterthought. And actually, other global concerns, especially the global food security crisis that we've seen connected to Ukraine, essentially took the place of the pandemic as a major point of reference for speakers from all regions. So I think that note you made about the dynamics around these issues and the way members engage with them is really important context. Tell us a little bit about what we've known about the dynamics within the General Assembly around the Ukraine conflict, how they've intersected leading into the session, and and how at least we anticipated, whether it proved accurate or not, it might shape their engagements around this unique high-level summit that, that happens every year in the form of the UNGA. Well, Ukraine has been the overarching topic of conversation in UN circles, and especially in the Security Council, since mid-February. And it is worth remembering that back in March, uh, the US and Ukraine's European allies managed to orchestrate some really impressive votes in the UN General Assembly condemning Russia's aggression. In early March, 141 of the 193 UN member states voted to condemn Russia after a big American push. But what we've seen in the course of the summer is a lot of UN members succumbing to what diplomats call Ukraine fatigue. There has been a sense that the war has been going on considerably longer than most observers anticipated. And ambassadors from Africa, the Middle East and other regions have become quite wary of calling out the Russians by name. And as I say, 
that's also what we saw uh, in a lot of speeches from from non-Western leaders in New York last week. I I don't think this means that there is a strong pro-Russian tendency at the UN. What I find talking to diplomats is simply everyone wants this problem to go away. And there is a, a real concern that talk of Ukraine is crowding out UN debates about other problems, uh, such as the worsening security situation in the Sahel or the threat of famine in the Horn of Africa. If you're an African member of the UN, you look at those crises, you want the UN to help you on those crises, and then you look at Ukraine, and even if you have a lot of sympathy for the Ukrainians, you, you wonder what you can really achieve by making statements of principles in the General Assembly. And so, you know, coming back to the high-level week, obviously the Europeans and obviously President Biden came with extremely tough messages for for Russia. And in fairness, you know, a lot of countries, Chile, for example, had similarly tough messages. But overall, there was the sense of everyone trying to duck the issue a little bit. So in ducking the issue, what are the different ways we saw countries framing their policy towards this issue, not naming Russia, but noting the risk of the conflict for the international system, the potential consequences of it. Can you give us a sense about what the different strategies these countries took in how they approached the conflict, given that it sounds like something was kind of unavoidable to address to some extent in their remarks? Some some members just didn't mention it at all. I'm working on a list of these speeches with colleagues right now, and you sort of spot that uh, I think the Central African Republic, uh, which is reliant on Russian mercenaries for security, somehow didn't find any space in its speech for Ukraine, uh, not not even a passing reference. What we did here was a lot of calls, and I think well-intentioned calls, uh, for a ceasefire or negotiations. And actually, Mexico slightly set the tone by coming to the General Assembly with a slightly nebulous proposal for a a five-year ceasefire, I think, between Russia and Ukraine, with an idea for Secretary General Guterres and the Pope to act as mediators between Moscow and Kiev. I mean, that was a particularly detailed proposal. But we did hear a lot of people talk about negotiations. We heard a lot of people talk about a ceasefire. Very few of these speakers got into the details of what a ceasefire would involve. And obviously, the Ukrainians worry. And President Zelensky said in a video addressed to the General Assembly, that he he doesn't believe a ceasefire would hold. He believes that it would simply give the Russians time to recover and regroup and, and then strike again. But most leaders weren't thinking in that level of operational detail. They were simply throwing out uh, the need for, for some sort of pause in hostilities. And I I can see that is frustrating for the Ukrainians, but I would point out that all too often at the UN, we hear European and American speakers saying that there is no military solution for a conflict like the the war in Ethiopia or the violence in South Sudan, and everyone should sit down and talk. I mean, often those calls are actually about as uh, vague as as what we've been hearing on on Ukraine from non-Western leaders. So in a sense, I think the West got a slight taste of its own medicine in New York. So you mentioned the address by Ukrainian President Zelensky 
which itself, the ability to give that address remotely at what is otherwise an in-person event, triggered a vote and was taken by some to be a little bit of a victory for Ukraine supporters. Can you give us a little bit of the sense of the dynamic around him making the speech and then the content of what he said, what how he reacted to the general tenor of the broader body's approach to the Ukraine conflict? Well, there's a great irony here, which is that in 2020 and to a considerable extent, 2021, every leader had to give a speech by video. And I think there was a sense in the UN community that video general assemblies were not a credible alternative to the real thing. No one actually was sitting there watching what felt like the world's highest level Zoom meeting um, back in 2020 or 2021. So the UN decreed that this year everyone would have to speak in person. And this raised the question about uh, what Ukraine could do, because obviously Zelensky could not reasonably be expected to leave the country and, and come to New York and uh, and talk. Although uh, Zelensky's wife did, did come and to some extent acted as, as his personal representative at the UN. This came down to a procedural debate in the General Assembly in mid-September before the high-level week, and the Ukrainians requested an exception for Zelensky, requested that he be the one one leader allowed to speak in person. Uh, the Russians threw up, up an objection, and the Russians and some of their hardcore allies like Venezuela and Belarus attempted to complicate the issue. But actually, in the end, I think most UN members just thought that it was common sense that the president of a country under siege uh, should be allowed to give a, a speech remotely. And so when it came to a vote, 101 of the UN's 193 members backed the speech, and there were very few active objections to it. Uh, Zelensky's speech itself was tough. I think it was primarily aimed at his uh, existing allies in the West. He lent heavily on the need for more arms for Ukraine. He demanded more economic penalties against Russia too. Most of that felt like it could have been in a speech to NATO. But one thing he did right was to talk about how uh, under a, an initiative mediated by the UN and the Turks in the summer, uh, Ukraine is now exporting grain uh, to the rest of the world and especially the developing world. And Zelensky actually read out a list of every single country that has received grain as part of this deal. So I think Zelensky had a bit of a balancing act. I mean, his main goal was to impress the the Europeans and impress the US and sort of push them to offer him more support. But he he did also read the room right, even though he wasn't in the room, and talked about some of the concerns of the global south about uh, food supplies, which have been a big issue this year as well. Now, of course, Having Zelensky give remarks that are much more targeted, particularly referencing Russia, and of course he wasn't the only one, even though a number of states in their remarks tried not to take that step, you know, begs a response from the Russian government that was represented here by Foreign Minister Lavrov. Tell us a little bit about their response and the actions of Lavrov, as well as Russia's other close allies who you mentioned who are also involved in this. How did they handle themselves throughout the General Assembly and respond to Zelensky's remarks? 
we, we were all quite fascinated to see how Lavrov would behave because he is a former ambassador to the UN and he generally has enjoyed a reputation for the last 10 or 15 years as one of the real masters of UN procedure. And I think that purely objectively, three or four years ago, many of us would have said that Lavrov was the most effective multilateral diplomat, at least on Security Council issues, that we could name. But Lavrov's um, reputation has taken a beating this year. I mean, he's been seen as a rather uncritical um, spokesman for President Putin's lines. And I think that as a result, he came to New York with a bit of a credibility problem. And he, you know, he seemed to be rather aware of this credibility problem. And it came into focus on the Thursday of the General Assembly week, um, Thursday the 22nd, when France convened a Security Council meeting on accountability questions in Ukraine. And most of the Security Council members, obviously all the Western ones, had very, very tough messages for uh, Russia about war crimes uh, committed during the war. Interestingly, even the Chinese and Indians, who were less tough on the Russians, did make some pretty strong statements about the need to end the war and to respect Ukraine's territorial integrity. Now, Lavrov basically didn't sit there in the Security Council chamber to, to listen to any of this. He allowed a, a lower-ranking Russian diplomat to sit in the, in the chamber you know, to hear all this criticism, and then he popped in for his own, his own speech, uh, which was highly forgettable, well-worn lines about why Ukraine is bad, and then he left again. And I think that for long-time UN watchers, the sight of, of Lavrov essentially looking scared to be in the Security Council and face criticism was quite striking because he's someone who we normally see as a, a very tough diplomat who can take sort of take all the blows that come his way in New York. So you've already noted the importance of the global food crisis, which of course has a close relationship with the conflict in Ukraine to a lot of people in the General Assembly more broadly, particularly the non-Western states, many of whom are more directly affected by the food crisis, particularly in Africa. Tell us a little bit about the role that played in these discussions and the way that the parties to the Ukraine conflict, uh, Western powers, United States, as well as Ukraine and Russia, shaped their responses to it, how it fit into their strategy, uh, both independently in addressing the food crisis and their broader strategy towards the conflict. The global food crisis was definitely the issue that got most attention in New York after the war in Ukraine itself. And as you say, the two things were obviously two sides of the same coin. I think Western diplomats have understood over the course of the summer that for many of their non-Western counterparts, the primary concern related to the war uh, has been the steep rise in global food prices, although actually that rise has has leveled off somewhat in recent months. And early in the war, the Europeans in New York in particular didn't manage that problem very well. They, they didn't seem very sympathetic to what their African and Asian counterparts were saying about the food crisis. But since late May, when the US organized some high-level meetings on, on food 
in, in New York, the West has pivoted and has really been trying to convince the global South that firstly, the the source of the food crisis is Russia's aggression. And secondly, Western countries have plans to help the world through this very difficult economic period. Now, the Russians have been arguing, and definitely a lot of African leaders in particular have accepted, that the real source of the food crisis is not the aggression, it's actually uh, Western sanctions on, on Russia. Joe Biden took on that claim directly in his speech to the General Assembly, pinpointing Russia's behavior as the, the source of the global food problem. Now, we can debate the, the rights and wrongs of Russian claims about sanctions, and, and it's complicated. But what Biden went on to do was to promise, I think, nearly $3 billion in extra food aid. A number of other Western leaders made similar promises. And there was a big, big effort by the, the US and the EU this, this month to sort of show that they are getting a grip on the global food situation and that African countries and other developing countries should trust them uh, and trust the West to uh, help them through this period rather than relying on Russia or China for assistance. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you mentioned China, which is kind of the other big actor we haven't otherwise gotten to. Obviously in a tricky position in regard to the Ukraine conflict because it is both in many ways, a strategic ally of Russia, one with a very trumpeted relationship with no knows no bounds or something to that effect in the rhetoric used by the two parties that was announced shortly before the Ukraine conflict, but has been a little bit more uh, tepid in support since then, but also concerned about the United States and the West reaction to the conflict, close ties to lots of other non-Western countries uh, in the international community, obviously worried about parallels between Ukraine and its own situation in Taiwan, which has been a point of increasing tension between with the United States and Chinese leaders heading into their own kind of important moment uh, later this year in terms of having a major party summit that is a kind of decisive moment for their own domestic politics. How do we see China approaching its role in these debates? What was its approach to both the Ukraine conversations and the broader UNGA? So on Ukraine, it was striking that Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, did quite firmly commit Beijing to Ukraine's territorial integrity in the Security Council session, uh, which I referred to earlier. 
and this feeds into a growing sense amongst Western diplomats that China has had enough of this war and wants Russia to uh, rein itself in. I mean, just prior to to the General Assembly session, uh, we'd seen this fascinating uh, leaders meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in Central Asia, where Putin had openly referred to China's concerns about the course of the war. You know, China did seem to be using the Security Council as another place to to bring home those concerns to the Russians and, and signal you know, signal its stance to to other UN members. So I think that actually Western diplomats came out of last week, you know, obviously worried by the overall state of the conflict, but at least optimistic that China may put a bit more diplomatic pressure on Russia to um, avoid a further deterioration. And more generally, I mean, the US put the Chinese in a difficult position uh, last week because Joe Biden spoke extremely frankly about the existence of US competition with China. And in his speech, he not only name-checked Taiwan, but he also raised China's persecution of the Uyghur minority and criticized Beijing for its uh, expansion of its nuclear program. And this was especially striking because in 2021, Biden didn't use the word China once in his General Assembly speech at all. He made a lot of coded references to the sort of return of great power competition. He made a strong pitch for the US as a leader. And we all understood that implicitly he was comparing US leadership with the alternative of Chinese leadership. But he didn't name China once. This year, he named it repeatedly, and he made specific reference to serious US divisions with, with the Chinese. Now, Biden has the advantage of playing a home game. Uh, when it comes to the General Assembly. The US is always recognized as effectively primus inter pares amongst UN members. And Xi Jinping, who had given video addresses in 2020 and 21, was not here in in person to to push back. But Wang Yi, the, the foreign minister, did make a pretty forceful statement about the need to stop external interference in China's affairs. He talked about the need for full reunification with Taiwan. I mean, he made it pretty clear that whatever Biden may say in New York, China is not going to defer to US preferences in the Taiwan Strait. So we've mentioned President Biden's speech a few times, which is always one of the most notable speeches, I think, at the General Assembly sessions, the United States and the president's speeches certainly for American audiences, one of particular interest. Walk us through what he did with his speech. We've already mentioned a few points, but how do they fit together into a broader strategy and frames how the Biden administration is engaging with the international community and the United Nations moving forward from from this event? It's worth noting primarily for the the UN nerds, but I guess some UN nerds will be listening to this podcast, that Biden's speech was was notable in the first instance for its timing. Uh, the US president normally speaks on the first morning of the high-level week uh, straight after Brazil by tradition. But because Biden had been to Queen Elizabeth's funeral in the UK on Monday the 19th of September, the US swapped to a slot on Wednesday morning. So actually, Biden came in uh, quite a bit later than the US president does. 
uh, which meant that his ability to sort of set the overall tone of the event was maybe a little bit reduced. But he did a good job, I think. Um, it was a workmanlike speech. Um, you could feel the many bureaucratic hands that had gone into contributing to it. It was strikingly full of, of detail, probably too much detail about various US policy initiatives. But nonetheless, I think he hit the main points he had to hit. Um, he started with a very strident criticism of Russia's aggression, um, calling out Putin personally for initiating that aggression. He then pivoted to talking about global issues such as food security, and food security was one area where he did get into a lot of detail, very much for the reasons I think that we've already discussed. In addition to food security, he talked about what the US is trying to do to fight climate change. He was able to reference his domestic success in getting climate change-related legislation through Congress. And, you know, he really tried to frame Washington as the power that is working to uphold the multilateral system across a whole range of issues in addition to Ukraine. And as I say, that that did mean that it felt like a very bulky speech. I mean, there were references to the US funding a, a small modular nuclear plant in Romania that, that just felt a bit random. But nonetheless, I, I think the overall message came across, which is you know, the US isn't in retreat in the international system. The US is actually propping up large parts of the the UN machinery. And it is continuing to do that despite a natural focus on Ukraine. That said, as with all the Western references to food security in particular, it's always clear that whatever people were talking about, they were really talking about Ukraine. You know, the, the message was, we are helping you on XYZ issues you should be backing us up over Russia's aggression. And you know that linkage was was very clearly there in, in Biden's speech. So, so as you've already mentioned, the summit itself had a pretty major interruption of sorts uh, or, or intervention from outside the body, um, but nonetheless, I think took a lot of attention away and brought some new complications into what was being discussed. And that was... Russian President Putin's announcement that he was moving forward with referendum in parts of eastern Ukraine with an intent to incorporate them into Russia, calling up Russian troops, essentially doubling down on the conflict in Ukraine, where it had appeared the last few weeks, at least, that Russia has been to a fair extent in retreat, at least in big parts of the country and territory it seized more recently. Tell us a little bit about how that interjection or intervention impacted the proceedings in the UN General Assembly and and maybe some of the logic behind why Putin may have chosen that timing if, if it was a deliberate choice as opposed to just coincidental? There's been a lot of speculation in the UN community about whether Putin timed his declaration to have an impact on the General Assembly. Uh, my instinct is actually more likely than not he was largely responding to events on the battlefield. You know, I think that we've known for quite a long time that Russia would move towards the annexation of Donetsk and uh, other regions under its control. But the successful Ukrainian offensive around Kharkiv probably affected the timing of his statement more than what whatever was going on in, in New York. Uh, Biden referred directly to what Putin had said in his speech. 
actually, a lot of other leaders sort of seem to carry on giving their prepared statements uh, regardless. They they didn't sort of massively rewrite their comments to reflect on on Putin's annexation move. But almost as soon as the leaders left, we have start, we have seen the UN system pivot to thinking about how to respond to the annexation threat. On Tuesday of uh, this week, there was a Security Council meeting in which Western members declared their opposition to any sort of Russian annexation. The US has now circulated a very strongly worded uh, Security Council resolution, a resolution under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, condemning what it calls sham referenda. And I think what we expect to happen is that as soon as Russia goes through with the annexation, which I understand is timed for early next week, the US will put down a version of this resolution, although it may weaken it, I think, to get some additional support. That will go to the Security Council. Uh, Russia will use its veto to block it in the Security Council. And then the General Assembly comes back into play because Ukraine and the US will go to the General Assembly and table a resolution there reaffirming Ukraine's territorial integrity and condemning Russia. Now, Western diplomats have been planning for this scenario since at least the early summer. They didn't know when the annexation gambit would take place, but they always knew it was going to happen. And European diplomats have been reassuring me all through the summer that despite this Ukraine fatigue I was referring to, they believe that a big majority of General Assembly members will stand up for Ukrainian territorial integrity. You know, territorial integrity is something which resonates not just with Ukraine's close allies, but it actually resonates with the UN membership as a whole. It's something which African ambassadors, Asian ambassadors, uh, you know, do see as a red line. So, what is quite interesting is that you know, while I think a lot of non-Western presidents and prime ministers did hedge their bets in their speeches last week, we'll actually probably see the US and EU marshal a big majority of General Assembly members to condemn the annexation manoeuvre at some point in, in early October. And you know, that will actually be significant because it will be the first substantive General Assembly vote on, on Ukraine since, since April. So another topic that President Biden raised in his speech with a surprising degree of specificity, at least to, to my ears, and that was being discussed in a number of different avenues throughout the General Assembly session, was this idea of UN reform, both Security Council reform and, and potentially other UN reform. Tell us a little bit about what President Biden said in that regard and what else is being discussed in the UN reform and whether or not this is a serious conversation or, or more a rhetorical point. Well, this this was a moment that filled me with uh, existential gloom because I've uh, I've worked on Security Council reform on and off for about ten years, and I would like that bit of my life back. But it was striking that President Biden said that, in light of what we have seen in the UN uh, in terms of Russia's behaviour over Ukraine, it is now necessary to have a conversation about. UN reform and specifically reforms to the Security Council. Um, he said that the US 
and other permanent members of the council should refrain from using their vetoes. I mean, obviously, a, a shot at Russia for for using its its veto to block any criticism of its its actions. And he also said, I think a bit more surprisingly, that the US would like to talk about proposals to expand the membership of the Security Council. Now, lots of other leaders made similar arguments this year about the need for UN reform and council reform. And actually, if you went back over records of previous sessions of the General Assembly, you would find that uh, some some regular speakers like Turkish President Erdogan have made reform a, a recurrent theme in a, in a lot of their interventions. But the fact that the US president was willing to say this and willing to make some quite specific points about avenues for discussion uh, really has galvanized a lot of attention um, around Turtle Bay. I mean, there's always been a sense that while there have long been negotiations about what Security Council reform could look like, this would all be pretty meaningless unless the US actually wanted to see change. So, so Biden's statement, which followed up on a, a slightly longer um, outlining of the US position by Linda Thomas-Greenfield the week before, uh, definitely did get some attention. Does the US have a plan for Security Council reform? Does it have a model that it would like to get to through multilateral negotiations? No, I don't think so. Does the Biden administration want to have a conversation about what is wrong with the UN? Yes, I think it does. I mean, I think it's a good it's a good faith initiative. And I think that it's an initiative that reflects the fact that, you know, the US is, is aware that after this year, lots and lots of countries are just looking at the Security Council, looking at the UN and saying, you know, what what the hell is this body for? What has gone wrong? And the US cannot stand back and pretend everything is is essentially fine. It needs to get ahead of the conversation and show that it's interested in getting to some sort of better international architecture. And that's actually, you know, raises another question that the UN General Assembly session is often a moment to reflect on, I think, for a lot of states and for a lot of observers of the United Nations, which is how effective have these institutions been, particularly in this moment where the Ukraine conflict, again, is is in many ways an unprecedented challenge to the UN system? Are these talks of reform recognition of those failures? And, and what do those fa- failures look like? Can you tell us a little bit about how that kind of underlying thought or concern may have informed some of the discussions around the session? I think the the first thing to say is that although the Security Council has has failed abysmally over Ukraine, that failure was predictable. And actually, there is a little good news coming out of Turtle Bay. And the good news is that, at least to date, the US, the Russians, and other members of the Security Council have managed to firewall their toxic differences over Ukraine with a limited but still real level of cooperation on dealing with other crises through the UN. So in the period from the 24th of February, uh, the Russian offensive and the end of August, the Security Council passed about 30 resolutions on issues ranging from UN engagement with the Taliban in Afghanistan to African Union stabilization operations in, in Somalia. And 
talks on those issues have been tough, but there has been some sort of tacit agreement between the big powers to keep working together through the the council on items on its agenda which are not Ukraine. So although we are talking a lot about the need for reform, I do take a little comfort from the fact that we haven't seen a more general breakdown of diplomacy in in New York. But you know, I think it is also fair to say that what we've seen over Ukraine and the way Russia has used its its veto was a genuine shock to a lot of diplomats. Much as the Iraq war was a genuine shock, we should say, nearly two decades ago to to a previous generation of of diplomats uh, in Manhattan. And there has just been a a broad feeling amongst officials from all countries that we have seen that there is a a, a flaw here, a profound flaw at the sort of centre of the UN that cannot be ignored. And obviously, that sense of disquiet has actually been rather effectively exploited, not least by the Ukrainians themselves, who have run a series of publicity campaigns asking, you know, why can Russia not be expelled from the Security Council? Why can it not be expelled from the UN altogether? I mean, everyone knows that this is a sort of a credibility crisis for for the UN. So I think, you know, Biden was tapping into this genuine sense of overall disquiet. Obviously, by doing so, he, you know, he was putting Russia on the spot too. But you know, as I say, I think the US does, in good faith, share this disquiet about the state of the UN. The problem is, is that as soon as you get beyond this immediate gut reaction, you know, something is very badly wrong. A P5 member is making nuclear threats on a fairly regular basis. Uh, you, you don't find a lot of consensus about what Security Council reform should involve. Japan, Brazil, India, Germany are still lobbying for permanent seats of their own. Other countries such as Argentina, Italy, Pakistan, are pushing back against that notion. No one has a very clear, credible political solution to how to limit the use of the veto. African countries are sort of pushing to have two permanent seats in the Council for Africa, but it's it's not clear who would fill those seats. I mean, Security Council reform debates are immensely messy, and it is quite possible that a year from now, Biden will come back to the General Assembly and say, well, we started a conversation, but that conversation just turned into a great big row about facets of of Security Council reform, and we just don't see a pathway forward. But again, I think it was the right thing to do to at least test whether a, a slightly more mature conversation about the state of the body is possible. So the UN General Assembly is, in a lot of ways, the big UN event of the year. It's it's the one guaranteed time that the United Nations is is heavily featured in, you know, world sections around the world, if not front pages, in terms of the events that happen. But of course, it's just one slice of what the UN is doing throughout the year. All the different UN bodies. Tell us a little bit, as kind of one of the leading UN watchers, what are you looking for next? in the UN's year before the next UN General Assembly, what do you look for in terms of the big events, the big actions, the the signposts to get a sense about where some of these debates and discussions are evolving? What are the next big things to look out for for the UN in the year to come? Well, I've touched on one of the most immediate, which is the likely debates in the Security Council and the General Assembly about Russia's claim um, to annex parts of Ukraine. I think that predictably is going to suck up a lot of attention 
in the coming uh, the coming weeks. You know, looking beyond that, there is no shortage of crises for the UN to to grapple with. Two situations that we will be watching very closely are Syria and Mali. In Syria, the challenges that uh, the Security Council since 2014 has routinely mandated uh, UN humanitarian workers to take aid into parts of the country that are not controlled by the government in Damascus. And that now is mainly in, in northwest Syria. Uh, Russia has been repeatedly manoeuvring to shrink that mandate and potentially kill that mandate off in recent years. It was debated in the summer. It will be debated again in December and January of this year. And I think that's going to be another big test of whether Russia and the West can continue to compartmentalize their differences over Ukraine and diplomacy on other issues. I think that if relations over Ukraine get even worse, Russia might finally use its mandate to kill this Syrian aid resolution in, in January. And you know that will cause significant instability and uh, concern in northwest Syria and its bordering regions in, in Turkey. So that's uh, one process that we're following closely. The other process that we're following closely is the situation in Mali. And the reason we're looking at Mali closely is that there you have a big blue helmet peacekeeping force, I think well over 10,000 troops and police, one of the largest remaining UN blue helmet forces, and it is struggling. Um, it is struggling because it is under constant attack from uh, jihadis, uh, but it's also developed really appalling relationships with, with the government of Mali that has been trying to limit the UN's human rights monitoring, uh, you know, limit what the UN mission can do, while simultaneously developing a relationship with Moscow and with the, the Wagner private military company linked to Moscow. And in recent months, we've started to hear UN officials say, we have reached breaking point. We cannot keep this blue helmet force in the country if it's continuing to face this level of jihadi violence, and if the government will not cooperate with us and instead is looking to Russia for security support. And for the first time that I can remember for quite a while, you have a very serious debate emerging amongst UN officials about whether it's time to admit that a UN peace operation has fundamentally failed and um, whether it's time to bring the mission home. Now, that would be, a, I think, a real blow to the UN's credibility, even though it is necessary. Um, the Security Council has asked Secretary General Guterres to to write a report on this issue. And I think I'm right in saying that report has to come out around the turn of the year. And again, that's something we'll be following very closely, because in the 1990s, the Security Council did withdraw Blue Helmet missions from some countries where they were patently failing, but that often led to spikes in violence. Over the last two decades, the Security Council has generally assumed that it shouldn't pull out peace operations from volatile countries, even if the situation is very bad, because the alternative might be even worse violence. But I think the situation in Mali is coming to a head, and we may see that mission close. And I think that will actually be quite a big turning point in the the long history of, of UN peace operations. So those are the two things that are 
that are sort of keeping me awake at night in addition to all the diplomacy around Ukraine. Well, it sounds like we may have more to talk about on future episodes of the Lawfare Podcast. But for this week, unfortunately, we are out of time. Richard Gowan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And sorry to end on some rather grim final notes. That is how a lot of our podcasts end, (laughs) for better or for worse, in this particular issue set. But thank you for joining us. And we may have you on yet to delve into these issues a little bit deeper. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfarebblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.